Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, adapters. Thanks again for joining in, and welcome if you are a new listener. So this is a very important episode for me, and I'll get to that really quickly. First off, the main guest of this episode is Christopher Flavel, the climate change and adaptation reporter at Bloomberg News. We have a fascinating discussion, and you are going to learn a ton about how local communities are and are not adapting to climate change. But first, it'd be crazy not to acknowledge it, but I'm recording this just a few days after the big decision by President Trump to pull the United States out of the Paris Agreement. Yes, it is terrible news. I obviously think it's a disastrous decision. I'm just as curious as everyone else on what's going to happen next. But I'm also very encouraged by some of the steps that we're seeing at the state and national, even the city level. We are going to address carbon emissions. Just doing this made that a lot harder. But some people are stepping up and they're stepping up quickly. So on that note, these are difficult times in the climate change universe. My goal with America Adapts is to highlight climate change stories, and I think that's critically important, and I think that can make a difference. And after the Paris decision, creating awareness around this issue is more important than ever. So I've been alluding to a big announcement for a couple of weeks on the podcast, and here it is. America Adapts is now a nonprofit organization. Before, I was just a private podcast, but in the past few months, I made this decision as I saw my listener base grow and based on the feedback that I've been receiving and encouragement I've been getting from my professional colleagues that this is the next step I wanted to take for the podcast and becoming a charitable organization was it. So in this episode, I invited Dan Ackerstein on to talk about what this means and why I'm doing it. And then after Dan, I have on Michael Pace, the executive director of the Social Good Fund, which is the organization sponsoring me. Michael will explain what that all means. And yes, now you can donate directly to America Daps Media. And there's a direct link into the show notes to do it. Also, I'd like to announce that I have an intern starting with me next week. This is perfect timing. It's Lisa McCullough. She's a student at Cornell University, and she will be doing a summer internship with America Daps Media. I will have Lisa on the podcast very soon, and you will get to meet her too. Welcome, Lisa. And I think we have a few surprises in store for Lisa as the summer unfolds. So I'm very excited about this about this move, and I hope you are. I will be asking for your support to help what I'm doing with this podcast. And with my conversation with Dan, you'll see what I want to do, and you'll see what I want to do much more. But more importantly, I want to build a community of adapters to help the public understand how this how important this issue really is. So please join me on this journey. And I hope you enjoy learning more about my transition to being a nonprofit, and then more importantly, Enjoying this episode, the main attraction, Christopher Flavel from Bloomberg News. All right, enjoy the episode. Hey, adapters, this is Dan Ackerstein. You may have heard this voice before on earlier editions of the podcast. Uh, I'm an associate producer of the podcast and longtime colleague of Doug's. And today he's asked me to, uh, to host a brief conversation about the new nonprofit status of America Adapts. So I'm excited to turn the microphone around on, uh, on our friend Douglas here and ask him some questions about the future of America Adapts. Welcome to your own podcast, Doug. Wow. Thanks, Dan. How exciting to be a guest on my own, my own podcast. We've turned these things to table around. Indeed we have. Indeed we have. And I, I intend to grill you on, uh, on this topic and, and make sure it's the last time you're ever on, on that side of the microphone. Doug, I, I know a little bit about your big news with the Social Good Fund and, uh, and what this means for America Adapts. 
Can you tell your listeners a little bit about what it means that you are officially uh, a nonprofit organization? How, what does this mean for America Adapts in the big picture? All right, just to give a little bit of history, and so this was, a, I, I just mentioned that I, I now am a nonprofit, and what I, that means is I have a fiscal sponsor, and I have you know, charitable status, and so it's just like you're, you know, if you're donating money to America Adapts, it's like donating to any charity, and the reason I did this is that I've been doing this podcast for about 10, 11 months now, and it's a weekly podcast, and just the feedback that I've been getting from folks is that they saw it as a resource, they liked what I was doing, and it made sense that being a nonprofit was sort of the future of what I was doing here. And so, you know, I, I did a bit of homework and, you know, transitioning into a nonprofit, if your mission's appropriate, it just made a lot of sense for me. Right. And say a little bit more about the, the kind of appropriate mission aspect of this and, and particularly about how that, how that guided your thinking in terms of Finding a host organization that uh, that would be right for uh, the right platform for America Adapts. Okay, and so the, the next up guest I have is Michael Pace from the Social Good Fund. So we're really going to learn a bit more about them. But they are my fiscal sponsor. But you know, and you were part of those discussions. What am I really trying to do here? This is not just right. supposed to be a podcast about adaptation. This is creating the, the mission is about creating awareness around adaptation. And as people know, my tagline is building a community of adapters. And that's what I think I've done in these last 10 months. It's just the interaction I have with my listeners. And I want to grow that and I want to create awareness. There aren't actually a lot of platforms to talk about this issue. And so just the conversations I was was having for, from people in the field and just people from the public that they they liked what they were learning and it was kind of creating awareness around an issue that wasn't being shared on on various platforms. It was sort of this kind of wonkish topic, and so that that was sort of the underlying drive. You know, the, the mission that I'm doing with the podcast. Right, and, and and that's exactly right. We've talked in the past about about your focus on the idea of building a community of adapters. And particularly that the podcast is sort of the most uh, the most public, the most prominent aspect of that mission, but not necessarily the 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 whole of the mission. And that there's there's other things that you'd like to see America adapts do, and other directions you'd like to take the the organization. Does this status sort of enable you to do those things in a, in a different way? Right. Yeah, it does. And you know, of, of course, when you become a nonprofit, there's you know how you go through fundraising and through individuals or corporations or foundations. And so it's going to give me the flexibility to approach people that I think are very interested in, in the mission that I'm doing here. And so, yeah, it, I think it gives flexibility. If don't need to get into the sort of details of podcasts, but you know, you have your sort of like just generally private podcasts and they raise money the old fashioned way. But the, the mission that I'm focusing on, it, it sort of lent itself, I think to the, the a charitable cause. And so that, that's why I went this way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree completely. I, I think it's it's also kind of connecting to that community of adapters idea. Your listeners are people who are really committed to this issue and really interested in this issue and, and understand the value of what it is that uh, that you're trying to do by building a community. If if a listener wants to be part of what you're doing, if a listener wants to help out with America Adapts or contribute to America Adapts or or support the mission of America Adapts. What are some ways that they can do that? Does this nonprofit status make it uh, more feasible for people to to donate to what you're doing? Yeah, of course. And you know, any support that the and so what I'm officially called now is America Adapts Media, and that's the project that's 
part of social good fun. It's a, and I, and that hopefully will sort of convey like my broader ambitions with what we're doing here is that, you know, that this is media and it's about creating awareness. And so, you know, in my show notes there, I now have the ability to people can say donate to this organization. And if you've given to a charitable organization before, of course, you you get a, a tax deduction as part of that. And I think that's attractive to some people, but ultimately people are going to support what America adapts is all about is based on what we're trying to accomplish here. And as you know, as I kind of give my elevator speech, when I talk to people is that adaptation is going to be humanity's greatest journey over the next 100, 200 years. And I want to be part of that. I want to convey that to the public. And I think I have a role in the people that come on this podcast, you and the community of adapters that listen and they participate, they are going to play that role. They're going to be ambassadors. And I want to give them the information to, to help them do that. And so again, being able to sort of support that and donating to the cause. But it, again, I, I'm looking for people to support because they, they like what I'm doing, but I want them to support the podcast and America Adapts Media because they feel like they're part of something and that we're accomplishing something here. And I think over the last 10 months, they see that the guests that we've had on and as you know, I share, I have very active uh, social media. I'm getting sponsored to actually go out and do podcasts in the field. And that's sort of like phase two of America Daps. That's what I hope to do more of if the resources come in. And so if you're supporting the podcast, it's allowing me to go out in the field and really capturing a lot of these adaptation stories in the field. And I think that's so much more interesting. I went up to Boston with Harvard University and about to go to Uganda. And so that to me is a very exciting phase. And just with additional resources, I'm going to be able to do that. And I'm going to be able to talk to more people and some of that shovel-ready adaptation, I'm going to be able to tell those stories. Well, that, that's exactly what I think is, has been super interesting in the last, the last three or four months um, of, of the pod, seeing the, the demand that's been pent up out there. And now that folks are realizing that, that, that this resource exists and that this voice exists, that, uh, that they can make use of it and, and share it more widely. This is obviously a pretty big milestone for America Adapts. Tell me a little bit about about the future for America adapts what um what can we look forward to if if when when you and I have this conversation in 2020 um what will we be talking about America adapts doing oh wow great question so again i just mentioned actually getting out in the field if i could do a third of all my podcasts out in the field that would be a great sort of evolution of of what America adapts media is all about you know people contact me they have these stories people say that listen we want to sponsor you to come and talk about these things and so that would be a big part of what I do but I'm also revamping my website my website's always been just about sharing some basic information sharing some of the podcasts but I want that to be more of a community and I have people that want to volunteer and write things and so I'm trying to create some additional platforms again building this community of adapters that there's sharing stories or they're writing their own pieces and I want to encourage that and the I hope to build up the website you know where we have newsletters and if you're interested you know there's a chance for you to write and here's an audience of of people that focus on adaptation I, I I'm going to create that sort of networking community for them to do that I actually have an intern starting very soon I'm very excited about that oh. that's going to up my resources she's going to be here for the summer she's uh Lisa McCullough from Cornell University I'm very excited for her to get started, and she's going to help with a lot of these things. And again, just laying the groundwork to creating this community. And 2020, I do have ambitions that you know there there might be a visual aspect to what we're doing here. I actually do have a YouTube channel for America Daps, but you know, there's mainly just sharing the existing podcast. But I'd like to be other people to be able to share some of the content. And then when I go out in the field, 
I will be able to document some of these things on video that I'm sharing on some of these channels. And so just sort of expanding the media available to tell all these adaptation stories. But again, I think the core part of it is getting more people involved, growing the podcast base, more listeners, and just what we're trying to do here is just influence the field too. When I, I hear from people that they've listened to a particular guest, they've learned something, we're influencing the field. And I think that's important because it's an emerging field and there aren't a lot of public venues for people to talk about this issue. Right. That makes that makes sense. Yeah, I I, I feel like 2020 is the right sort of time horizon to be looking toward uh, that ballpark. Any any longer than that, I think we have to project out to assuming that you'll be broadcasting from a a floating oil derrick somewhere out in the sea. while the rest of us try to evolve gills. Right. <laughs> You're thinking of a previous episode, but yes. My mistake. My mistake. Last question. Um, what, uh, what lies ahead here in 2018? Any, any exciting um, guests that you'd like to, to, uh, to tell us a little bit about? All right. So some of my guests, and you know, I, I don't necessarily like to mention them until I've recorded, but I have these things in the queue. Is I've got Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, the famous climatologist. I'm recording with her next week, and I'm very excited about that. She, she was on stage with President Obama and Leonardo DiCaprio, so uh, I, I'm excited to get her on. And then I'm going to Uganda, and I'm going to be talking with adaptation professionals who work in the developing world, and, and I'm very excited about that. And also talking about working with um, landscape uh, architects in, in their field, and adaptation is just a huge sector. And I've been approached by folks to do more indigenous podcasts, and so I've been giving some names to to interview, and I'm, it looks like I've got someone from Cadmus, which is a private consulting firm, coming on, and we're going to talk about how the private sector does adaptation. And, you know, I'd like to map out maybe a month or two, but any further than that, I think any, uh, you know, I like, I'm always looking for interesting guests. And so if you're out there listening and you think you have an idea for an interesting guest, uh, just, yeah, contact me. But the sky's the limit. And I think what the, un the no unknown factor here is as I kind of reach out more myself and looking at getting sponsored podcasts where people sponsor me to go out into the field, that I am going to unusual places and I'm dealing with local governments or I'm dealing with uh, nonprofit groups working in these areas and they want the these stories told. And the medium of the podcast is a really rich way to kind of dig into it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think it's a really, a really fun and accessible way for, for folks to learn what you're talking about. So folks, for the record, Doug has a lot of fantastic guests lined up, uh, a lot of travel and adventure. That's it for us today on America Adapts. Thanks for joining us and uh, congratulations again to Doug for this, uh, this great step for uh, America Adapts. Yeah. And thanks Dan for stepping up today. And I want to thank all my listeners out there. And I, you know, for those who are thinking about supporting the podcast, you know, there are links to donate and it's pretty simple. But again, you know, when you donate to an organization, it's about do you believe in the mission. And I'm going to take it upon myself that what I'm doing here is something that you want to believe in. And again, building that community of adapters, contact me. Let's, you know, I want you to be part of this. And even people that aren't adaptation professionals, there's information you can share. Or you can share your perspectives of, on why you're interested in learning this. And, and I'm hoping to use my website to provide a platform to kind of share all these kind of things. And so uh, I, I want to encourage building up this community. So thanks, Dan. My pleasure. Hey, welcome back, adapters. And so as part two of this big announcement that now that America Adapts Media is a charitable organization, I wanted to bring on the group that's responsible for that. So I've got Michael Pace, the executive director of the Social Good Fund on. Hey, Michael, how are you? Good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm very excited about this episode where I'm kind of 
coming out and telling people that I am now a charitable organization. It was thanks to, to your group. And so just I was hoping you could maybe say who you are and just talk a little bit about what the Social Good Fund is all about. Absolutely. Yeah. So we are a fiscal sponsor. Most people don't know what fiscal sponsorship is, uh, but basically we are a charitable organization that uh, works to help people start charitable projects, um, whatever those might be in, in their community. So, so for example, if you are an individual, uh, maybe a group of people, sometimes even uh, businesses or established organizations, but you don't have your own 501c3 a charitable status, we will bring you under our umbrella or work with you um, so that you can use ours to fundraise tax deductible uh, dollars for your efforts. And so that can look a couple different ways. For most projects, we also do a lot of the back-end administration. So we do the bookkeeping, the accounting, the taxes, the payroll. We pay your bills, uh, things like that. So basically, we are a platform that allows you to do good in your communities. Okay. And so you talk about all these projects that you are helping sponsor. Maybe you could just kind of give people a sampling of some of the projects that you're currently doing that for. Sure. So, you know, when we got started, we – let me – so – I'll back up a second. So traditionally, fiscal sponsorship has it's been around for some time, um, but a lot of the major sponsors, it can be quite difficult uh, to get in with them. So either they they had a long waiting process to hear if you were approved. They might require a large amount of funding uh, to get started. So, for example, with one of the bigger uh, organizations, Tide, you need one hundred thousand dollars. And it just was. Uh, pretty challenging uh, to find a sponsor that would take you, especially if you're a startup. And, and that just never made a lot of sense uh, to me personally. I thought, you know, this, this world needs a lot of good. Communities need people to go and do those good things, make them happen. And so like, why not make it easy for people to get started? And so uh, we have a very broad mission. I, our mission technically is to create and establish positive influences for individuals, communities in the environment. And so, you know, the idea is that we can help people in just about every area. So whether that is education, that's the arts, that's the environment, that's women's health. We work with projects in, in almost every uh, area you can think of. A couple examples are we work with uh, a project that builds wells um, for people in need uh, in the Middle East, uh, in Africa. We, we work with some birth centers to help women do natural births uh, in their area. Uh, we work with schools. There's, there's just, if you can think of it, uh, we do it. We also sponsor some, um, some plays and, and artistic, uh, endeavors as well. So we do just about everything. Okay. And obviously, you know, so people know it, it was a great resource for me as I, I've been doing this podcast for about 10 months and just the mission associated with what I'm doing may, it, it align well with the charitable organization. And so not getting too much of the weeds, but being a 501c3 does take a lot of paperwork. It takes a lot of time. And if you are a small operator, it's, it just, it, sometimes it keeps you from doing some of these things you want to do. And so I want to thank you. You've created a, a, an infrastructure that allows, like you said, these socially good things to kind of work. And so I guess my next obvious question is like, and I think my listeners are curious is, you know, why was America DAPS a good fit for what you're doing? Well, you know, you guys are working hard to to reach out and bring awareness to people, um, have people on your show and, and just educate folks and, and sort of, you know, create an environment uh, where people can learn and grow. And uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that, that we love to support. So we are very excited to have you on board, um, especially in the format of a podcast. We actually don't have 
I'm trying to think if we've had any other organizations or projects that have, have done their work through a podcast format, and I don't think we have. So you are our first, and that's especially exciting. Awesome. <laughs> you know, but in general, you're out there creating positive influences is, is exactly why we are established. And so we're very happy to be working with you for sure. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate that. And again, I think a lot of it's going to be on me to, to convince uh, listeners to why this is a socially good thing, but to appreciate that what you guys are doing, giving this opportunity. And so um, certainly have work cut out for the, the podcast to, to get people sort of I, what I'm trying to do is build a community of adapters here. And so mm-hmm. what you guys have done is, you know, you're laying down the sort of the infrastructure to let people do that kind of thing. And so I, I certainly appreciate that. Yeah, oh, you're very welcome. Absolutely. So any kind of final thoughts to anybody like, a, I guess, website address? I mean, I'm going to have this in my show notes and everything, but uh, I know there'll be a link to donate to America. <laughs> but any sort of other plugs you want to give? I still have you on. Uh, sure. You know, you can find us. Uh, we are at socialgoodfund.org. You know, and honestly, we're we're here because we want to see good things happen uh, throughout the world. We know people need it. And if you are a person or a group of people that are trying to do good in your community and you want to be able to raise tax deductible funds or apply for grants, you know, we're happy to help. Uh, you can do all kinds of things from tax deductible crowdfunding, peer to peer crowdfunding. We can give you the online donation tools you need to do it. And so if you're looking to do that kind of work, feel free to get in touch. Um, we'd be happy to help you. All right. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, welcome back, Adapters to America Adapts. On today's episode, I have a very exciting guest, Christopher Flavel, the climate and adaptation reporter at Bloomberg News. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, Chris. So we were introduced actually by a previous America Ga- uh, America Adapts guest, Jesse Keenan. So how do you know Jesse? You know, that's a good question. How do I know Jesse? I, I think I, I think I first spoke to him when I wrote a piece looking at resilience and adaptation. And I got this email from Jesse, who I had never met, saying that I had fudged the two and they were quite different and uh, I should I should be aware of it. And so I called him right away. I said, if, you know, if I'm missing something, you tell me. And, and Jesse Keenan gave me this really fantastic walkthrough of the ways that adaptation and resilience aren't just different ideas, but can sometimes be in pretty significant tension. So right away, it was clear that he was somebody who knew this stuff, and I've I've stayed in touch ever since. Well, he's. I used to think I, I knew a lot about adaptation, but then I met Jesse, and he just really made me feel dumb about <laughs> what I don't know. <laughs> but he wears he wears that knowledge lightly to his credit. No, I I totally agree, Chris. We originally when we were talking about setting up this this podcast that you were going to be on the floor at Bloomberg News, and we we're going to have all this kind of news chatter in the background, but you ultimately went to someplace a bit more quiet. But I just want to give people that kind of ambiance. You're at Bloomberg, this famous news organization. So if if they want to visualize that, I, I was actually kind of looking forward to that, but that's okay. I, I am in a, a semi-quiet hallway off the main newsroom uh, at Bloomberg's, at one of Bloomberg's offices in Washington, D.C. Excellent. So, Chris, what I had in mind for this podcast is I, I'd like to talk a bit about the stories that you cover and then generally the, the, the field of adaptation, just kind of getting your thoughts because you are just in the thick of you're discovering things that I think are really just fascinating. So that's kind of how I hope this conversation unfolds. Yeah. I, so I, I would, I would just set it up by saying there's a lot of people in this town and across the country covering climate change. I've always divided it into two different areas that are fairly distinct. One is emissions, 
which is, you know, whether and how we reduce the, uh, the quantity of greenhouse gas to go into the air. And the second is how you deal with the emissions already in the atmosphere and the ones that are going to keep on going in. And so within that second bucket of adaptation, I think of a further division, which is you've got sort of people writing about the fact that the climate is changing, which I think Americans are still getting their heads around. But then once you acknowledge that, then you move on to, I think, the really interesting stuff, which is not just what do we do about it, but what are the consequences? What are the choices we face? And what are the trade-offs? Who gets hurt? Who benefits? Uh, how do you decide who you help and who you don't help? What does it mean for technology and the economy and how we live, where we live, what we eat, what we drive? I think all these questions that ultimately revolve around economics and policy and some degree of social equity are only going to get harder. Uh, and so I, I try to think of my job as looking at how the, the need to adapt to climate change fits into and interacts with all the other political debates that we already are dealing with. Wow, you just jumped ahead to already some of my questions. You're way ahead of me. What I was going to ask is, what is Bloomberg News? We're going to dig into those issues, but I think, I think a lot of folks just, I mean, we, we know Michael Bloomberg and we know Bloomberg News, but I, I, I'm just curious if maybe you could describe Bloomberg News as maybe it's not your typical news outfit. Yeah, it was started as a, uh, one of the services offered to people who subscribe to the Bloomberg Terminal. And it has about, I don't know, roughly 300,000 users around the world, uh, mostly people in finance. Bloomberg News was a financial service to help people use the terminal to make better trades, better investment decisions, a lot of bond information. I think the, the ethos of Bloomberg News at the beginning and, and still is this idea of you can make markets more efficient with more information and more transparency. And then you apply that broadly, of course, that can go to politics, can go to economics. Uh, and for us, climate change is a big beat because it affects so much. Uh, and so I think Bloomberg is trying to use some of its resources to help, help readers understand what's happening with climate change and how it, again, affects the broader economy. Okay, so you were getting to it a little bit earlier. So you are called a climate change and adaptation reporter. So why did you go with adaptation and not, let's say, resilience? Yeah, well, you know, resilience is a funny word. I think it it's almost intentionally vague. It can mean a lot of things to people. It can mean fortifying your position so you can avoid changing how you live or changing how your economy works. Um, I think resilience, if you ask folks like Jesse Keenan, will say it, it can be sort of a troubling idea because it can shield you or allow you to pretend that things aren't as bad as they are and that the magnitude of change you need isn't as great as it might be. Adaptation, I think, cuts past that. Adaptation, by my reading, accepts the premise that something has to change, that you can't continue your current practices, your, your routines, your habits. And the question then is what changes and what does it become and, and how do you get there? So adaptation, I think, is probably the hardest part of climate change. I've, I've always thought that compared to cutting emissions, uh, which will entail driving different kinds of cars and, and changing how we generate power, adaptation is much more far-reaching. It changes really how we live. And I, I think I'm not aware of any societies, at least in the developed world, that have really got their heads around that and started to face the magnitude of adjustment that's going to come as we, as we try to cope with a changing world. 
So I've mentioned that a lot on this podcast, having that kind of debate about adaptation resilience. And I've been just dumping on resilience because, like you say, you can ask 10 different climate experts what resilience means, and you might get 10 different definitions. And I think that's problematic, especially when you start talking policy and changes in how we do things. And adaptation is just – it's more of an umbrella term. So I'm I'm thrilled you went with adaptation reporter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think also – Resilience resilience is almost intentionally vague again because it can mean something that I think appeals to conservatives, which is being tougher, right? Finding a way to avoid change and to almost fight back against climate change. Uh, adaptation, I think, is a much more almost a humble ideology where it says we accept that we can't beat this and we've got to find some way to live with it. Oh, I love that. A humble ideology. I'm going to have to start using that. That's good. So how long have you been doing the climate? Uh, I guess we, I said that the other day, the beat or the adaptation beat at Bloomberg. So I, I've been covering climate change broadly since uh, 2013. Uh, and then starting last year, actually, I remember there was a press release that the Obama White House sent out. I think it was in January, uh, announcing the winners of the, the NDRC, the National Disaster Resilience Competition. There's that word resilience again. And I flipped through and I saw these cities and states that had won money from the federal government, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, to try to cope with climate change. And the first thing that struck me was of the projects listed, there was only one that I recall that really clearly entailed moving people out of harm's way, which is clearly, I think, the, the toughest, the toughest kind of adaptation, right? When someone can't live where they've been living. Uh, and I thought, boy, if, if there's more of that, this is going to be a really tough policy issue. And I, I wrote a piece, as many reporters did, on that that case, Ilva John Charles in Louisiana. And from that, some more stories flowed. And, and then I talked to my editors, and, and there was appetite at Bloomberg uh, for trying to trying to give readers an idea, not just of how climate change affects the planet, but how it affects, again, our, our communities and our economy and regions of this country. I think the other thing that strikes me about climate change is Americans, to the degree they think about a changing world, tend to think about climate effects happening somewhere else. You know, Bangladesh, Pacific Islands, the Netherlands is always below water. People worry about that. But I think this notion that it's something that is not just real, but happening here in the U.S., in communities people, people care about. Louisiana, of course, but Florida I wrote about. New Jersey, Texas, I think this, we're still coming to grips with the idea that it will affect us and not just people in far off places. You were actually doing healthcare coverage before you started climate work, right? Yeah, I was an editorial writer uh, for Bloomberg View, the editorial and opinion section at Bloomberg News, uh, and, and climate change was one of my beats there. And that was, that was how I got started. And then in January of this year, uh, I left the editorial board and went to the newsroom to cover climate and adaptation policy as a reporter. Okay. Just the reason I ask, I just think it's interesting sort of having maybe a different kind of history and covering different topics is that I, I think the adaptation universe has kind of gotten tunnel vision. So it, it is kind of nice if you have different perspectives, you're kind of covering this really big issue. And I, I'm guessing it served you well. Yeah. I think it's important to remember this is a policy area like anything else. I mean, the fact that the fact that people can look at it as sort of a, quasi-apocalyptic issue isn't always helpful. It's it, uh, Climate change adaptation is going to hit people like any policy problem in increments, and you can make it better or worse 
in small steps. Right now, those steps are mostly happening at the local and state level. There aren't a whole lot of federal programs that deal with this. But like any other seemingly intractable issue, whether it's health care or tax reform or education, I think the, the job of a reporter covering it is to go and find examples of people doing interesting things and then look at whether it's working. And, and again, not many federal policies on this, but lots of states and cities are faced with the effects of climate change right now. And I, I think it's an endlessly fascinating exercise to go and find out how it's working, uh, if it's working, and what lessons other communities that are certainly going to face something like it might learn from those experiences. Okay, I want to dig into some of the stories that you've done, but one other question related to like your responsibilities as adaptation reporter, you cover some of the emissions issues, right? But I mean, how do you kind of figure out what you're going to focus on? Because it seems like the carbon side could t dominate all your time. I mean, how have you sort of, I mean, how do you allocate your time? I mean, do you, do you even do that or just these issues pop up? Yeah, you know, Bloomberg, big team people covering climate change. And so we have colleagues who will focus on emissions, people who focus on energy, renewables, electricity. Uh, I've got very good colleagues here in D.C. who focus pretty tightly on what happens at EPA or Department of the Interior. And so I, I'll, I'll jump in when they need help with that. I'll also sometimes work on climate policy at some of the agencies you don't usually associate with climate change. And that's where it can tip over adaptation. Uh, FEMA, of course, has a huge role here. Uh, Science-based organizations like NOAA or NASA can be involved. But for the moment, I'm the only person who is sort of explicitly focused on the adaptation question. I mean, part of it is that there's lots of policy movement on emissions. I mean, Donald Trump, President Trump, campaigned on rolling back a lot, explicitly campaigned on rolling back a lot of President Obama's policy measures on curving emissions. He didn't say much about how we deal with the consequences of emissions. I mean, one could speculate that's because it's not really part of the conversation, so it didn't come up. Perhaps he felt like it was not worth talking about because it draws attention to this question of, is the climate changing? And the data sure says it is. Uh, but there's just less happening in terms of federal policy. And so most of my time, again, is spent looking at what states and cities are doing. And it's fascinating, but I think it it's only beginning to be a, a busy policy area, which perhaps explains why there's so few reporters dedicated to it right now. That must have been a kind of a jarring change. I mean, I, I guess at the local government level, you're seeing continuity of what people are doing, but you are covering what the federal government, and I'm sure the angle was partly like, are they doing it the proper way? And now, I guess with President Trump, it's like, are they doing it at all? I mean, that's just a major shift. You know, one of the, I think one of the big questions of this administration as with many policy areas, is just how much has changed. Uh, I was speaking with somebody at FEMA recently, and he was saying, you know, these, these guys are professionals. There's not yet a confirmed political appointee. They're sort of carrying on as they were. Uh, Army Corps of Engineers, another example of a federal department that works in this stuff, and, you know, isn't all that political, perhaps at least not in the traditional sense. And so it's not clear to me yet how much of it has changed. President Trump did reverse some of Obama's executive orders directing federal agencies to have climate adaptation plans. But on the ground, there are some changes for sure, but I, it's, I think it's hard to answer that question yet as to whether the White House has even tried to roll back some of that adaptation work. Part of it might be they're not aware of it. It's not, I think, as prominent or high profile as other climate change issues. Also, I think there's a risk, right? The lesson of Katrina was if something bad happens, the last thing you want politically is to be 
the guy blamed for it. So I, I sense in my reporting a reluctance among federal officials to really get involved too much in federal disaster policy or even anything peripherally related to that kind of policy. Because, again, the next big flood or storm, if people get the impression that they were hurt more because of what you did as a government agency, there is a really enormous anger that comes with that. And so I think unless unless you can make a clear case that the changes you're trying to implement will make things better in terms of protecting people, I sense a reluctance by federal officials of either party to really get too involved, at least publicly, in, in disaster policy and adaptation policy. Yeah, I worked for the, uh, the National Park Service in their climate change response program, so I obviously have a lot of links still back in that. And I think, you know, there's just a hold pattern, you know, waiting for the shoe to drop, you know, are those programs going to get it zeroed out? Mm-hmm. So it, mm-hmm. it remains to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's early days, and, and as, as has been thoroughly reported, a lot of these political appointee positions haven't been filled yet. So I think we'll know more in, in three or six or 12 months. But for the moment, uh, it, it's, it's unclear. And people who talk about or work on adaptation, they've been telling me for the last few months, it, it really isn't clear what the intention is, right? I mean, the, again, the intention on emissions programs from President Trump was very clear. They're, they're hurting the economy. Let's get rid of them. On adaptation, on protecting Americans, you know, it's 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 one of those I think relatively unique areas in federal policy where it's not yet hyper politicized and it's not clearly a Democratic or Republican issue. I think part of it is there's there's not as much appeal to your base by talking about it, so it just doesn't surface the same way that the Paris climate deal does or healthcare does. I hope they don't drop these things, but the first few months have not been incurred. Well, okay, Chris, I want to jump into some of the stories. You sent me multiple stories, a lot of the work that you've done, and quite frankly, I was blown away. I mean, you really just capture these geographic regions. I mean, they were it was riveting to read this stuff, and I think what makes a lot of the stories really good are some of the great quotes. And so if you could, like some of the stories I referred to, if there's like if you want to just say like maybe the time frame, because I can't remember at the top of my head and maybe the titles, but one I really want to start with is there's a New Jersey story where you're, they're trying to buy out some of the homes there. And so you talk to quite of the, you know, local officials and what's the title of that piece? Yeah. You know, I, I, I forget the title, right. but, but I went, I went down New Jersey last summer, the summer of 2016, because they have, I think one of the most active, and on paper, impressive relocation programs. After Hurricane Sandy, they got federal money to uh, to buy out homes that were either damaged by Sandy or damaged by other storms. And the notion was they would go to these homeowners and say, we will give you the pre-Sandy value of your home. In return, we will move you out and demolish the home, convert the land into a, a flood barrier of sorts. And the next time there's a storm, which there will be, not only will we not have to pay to rebuild your home, but the land it sits on will become sort of a buffer against the next, the wave velocity or the, or the wind force next time. It's a great idea. And what I found visiting four or five towns taking part in this program was it's really hard to implement. And the reason is the idea of building buffers from, from this sort of reclaimed land only works if you got, they call it contiguous plots of land. If you buy out, say, an entire block mm-hmm. and then turn that block into a marsh or a plain or a park. What happened instead was in almost every case, I think in every case I saw, you have what they call a sort of a jigsaw pattern where a few houses said yes, 
a few houses said no, and the result is eerily empty plots of land between houses. And the result was you it's it's a success narrowly defined in that you don't have to rebuild those houses. They're gone. But you don't have any kind of a buffer. All you have is frustrated local officials who now have less tax base, but they really have to pay more per house to maintain the same services. You just service a block, whether it's utilities or roads or police. And so local officials grumbled. They said, this doesn't really work as we were told it would. I even heard one story about a house, a duplex where one owner sold and the other didn't. And so the, the local police chief said, how, how are we going to tear down half hmm, a house? Wow. Uh, but the, the thing, the thing that really hit me though was I was walking through one neighborhood where as I was there, the city was tearing down houses that had purchased through this program because they were so-called repetitive loss properties. And I met someone who had just bought one of the houses that were left and just moved in. And I said, you know, did you know that this is a neighborhood the city and the state is trying to remove because of flood risk? He said, you know what? I didn't know, but I love it because I've got all this empty space with these <laughs> empty lots on their side. And by the way, do you think that if I wait a few months, they'll buy me out too? And I thought, you yeah, know, that like that, that American spirit of how can I make things work for myself? And maybe, maybe people aren't always that quick to think about the public good. The, the, the thing that I left New Jersey with, with the idea I left with was unless and until local officials are going to be willing to use eminent domain, which is such a touchy issue, mm -hmm. it's hard to see how these kinds of climate preparedness buyouts can work. And everywhere I went, I asked the mayor, you know, would you consider eminent domain? Because otherwise, it's hard to see this program being a success. And to a person, they kind of recoiled and said, I would never do that. So it's, it's, and federal government officials have no desire either to do that. So it's really hard to see, even under ideal circumstances, you know, fresh memory of a flood, lots of federal money, lots of buy in from officials. It's hard to see how you clear out the most vulnerable areas. I think that's, that's really hard. I just totally had a vision of like you talking about that guy on the street that you're talking to. I'm thinking that movie, The Big Short, when they go down to Miami and they're just talking to some of these people in these kind of neighborhoods that are empty and like the yeah. same thing's going to be happening with that climate change story that you just described. There's going to be a big yeah. short movie based on that. And uh, you're going to have all these really interesting stories as these communities fall apart, as the, the government buys up the land in very haphazard way. Yeah. The thing I, the thing I just, I want to stress is there's no right answer here, right? You could argue from the point of view of these homeowners, they've got every right to be there. They're, they're, they're not, I mean, you could argue they're hurting people by being there because they're adding to future disaster response costs because that's more people that the local police or fire service have to go and help after a storm. But that's not, you know, I don't know how persuasive that is as balanced against someone's right to live in their home. So I think how communities answer this question of when and whether and how to remove vulnerable homes and vulnerable people is so interesting, precisely because it's not clear what ought to happen or even what a good outcome would be. Whatever you do, 
someone's going to be hurt. Okay, just an aside, for people listening, I'm going to have links to your articles in my show notes. So if people are on their smartphones, you can actually click that on. And some of these photographs that Chris is talking about, you can look as even we're having this conversation. They're just great photographs, you know, these communities in decline. So I just wanted to point that out. And what you just described, I want to just read a quote here, which I thought was fascinating. It's um, from John Spodafora, the mayor, Spodafora. Spodafora, the yeah. mayor of Stanford Township. This is New Jersey. And here's his quote. There's no areas of my town that I can say that aren't worth protecting. And I thought that was fascinating. And then the first thing that came to my mind was, isn't it his job to make these tough choices? You know, Yes and no. You could you could interpret his job of making tough choices as doing whatever it takes to get federal money for as long as he can, right? He wants he wants as much as a hundred million dollars in state or federal money to build a series of berms around his town, which is near the Jersey Shore, to protect it against wave velocity in the next hurricane. Which is you know, like what more could you want from a mayor? He wants to protect the people, but. Those berms would only protect about 5,000 homes, number one. Number two, because of sea level rise and subsidence, those homes are going to be underwater at some point in the next few decades. It might be 20 years. It might be 50 years. We don't know. But that, that notion of how do you allocate fixed resources and scarce resources to protect the most people, and maybe at some point spending $100 million on a berm is money you can't spend Helping people have a way out. The response is going to be they don't want to leave. Right now, they don't want to leave. So what do you do? And I think the the real dilemma for local officials is at what point does your job change from trying to fight for what people say they want to trying to fight for what you think they'll want down the road but don't yet realize? And that's just such a such a hard thing to ask of anyone. Yeah, I don't think a lot of these politicians signed up to be like hospice workers. (laughs) I I think, and, and yet, if you talk to people who study this academics, they say it's the wrong way to look at a community. Don't look at just a community as the houses that can't stay where they are. Look at the community as as a whole. And by moving sort of the front row of homes away from the water, you can help the community as a whole stay healthy, right? You can you can avoid the kind of devastating storms or soften the blow of these devastating storms, and and you can help protect the tax base. Uh, and maybe avoid the kinds of shocks that really can devastate communities. So one way of looking at it is if your obligation as a mayor or as a state senator or a governor is to the whole of a town or the whole of a city, do what works best for all of it, even though that means people by the water will be upset that they can't stay where they are. But again, it's the people who are who, who stand to lose in the short term who tend to have the most at stake and tend to fight to prevent these kinds of changes, which is completely understandable. Okay. I knew a little bit about these programs, but I didn't know the specific names. And so there's the Blue Acre program. And could you just briefly explain what that program is? Yeah, that's the program authorized and appropriated by Congress, or rather funded by Congress, run by the state of New Jersey uh, after Sandy to offer pre-Sandy home prices to people who keep on getting flooded to buy their homes and, and demolish them and turn them into into floodplains. It's so it's a state-run program with federal money, and probably it's a model for other states to follow. But so it's a voluntary program. They're not like it's not like eminent domain where they're forcing people. But at, at the same time, they are actively looking for willing sellers, right? Yeah. The, the way it works is the state will try to identify local governments that want to take part, 
and they'll say to local governments, we want you to give us a list of people who meet this criteria, hit by Sandy or other floods. And then the local government is meant to work with those homeowners to get them interested. Uh, and what I found was, interestingly, it tend to be lower income areas that raise their hands. Wealthier areas by the beach, especially Jersey Shore, which was hit very hard by Sandy, have thus far had almost no interest in this stuff. So it, it sort of self-selects. I think what I could tell from my reporting was it tends to be the homeowners and and their local officials who really have no choice and have no options. They're the ones who sign up for this first. So when I first, well, I didn't really understand the program until I read your article, but the first thing that came to mind is just like how this could be exploited in a negative way. And maybe I don't even want to bring it up, but it's just like it's basically a funding program by taxpayers to kind of and this is how I'm like worst case scenario to destroy communities based on this perceived threat of climate change. And do you get what I'm getting at? Is this like if, if someone kind of decided they didn't like that program and they thought it was a force of something negative? It could easily be spun into like, look what they're doing with our taxpayer. Because, and I guess why that stood out for me is just the way you describe these communities and the struggles that they had to kind of like decide to sell. Like, how, how are we going to break up our communities? And so when I saw that Blue Acres program, I immediately was just thinking, oh my goodness, someone could really kind of sort of explain this in a very negative way. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a problem for this stuff writ large, right? It's not going to be at a high level. The problem is it's not going to be everyone who moves. If you take the universe of people of Americans who are most vulnerable to sea level rise or hurricanes or flooding or wildfires or whatever, not everyone's going to move, right? There's got to be some mechanism for deciding who needs, whether it's help or encouragement to move. Uh, and there's any number of ways you can do that. In New Jersey, it's sort of on paper, it's who has the highest risk. Um, but in reality, it turns to be who has the least money and, and needs help and doesn't have any options. And also, do local officials want to take part or not? You could imagine it also to be who faces you know, the, the, the most risk right now. You could say who has been hurt the most in the past. You could make it all self-selected. You could, you could imagine a federal program that says we are going to have funding to buy out X number of homes every year and first come, first served. Uh, we could say we're going to, you know, offer this much money, but we'll cap it and, uh, and people with lower priced homes will be more likely to take part. There's no model for this that I'm aware of. I mean, there's, there's times in the past the U.S. government has tried to relocate people, usually didn't go well, but there's no, there's no good model from this country to follow that can say, here's a good way to help people move when they're in harm's way from climate change that doesn't feel coercive because we're talking about people's homes, right? So anything that is going to be a sufficient incentive to get meaningful numbers of people to move is going to feel coercive to somebody. And I think that's why at every level of government, you don't see much interest in pursuing these kinds of programs until communities have no alternative. It's just, it's ripe to be punting the ball, you know, the whole, the whole field. Yeah. Okay. I want to pivot really kind of abruptly to another one of your stories. And this, again, another fascinating story. And this was with the home building industry and like building codes. And I know people are thinking, Oh, that's fascinating. It was fascinating. And, <laughs> and some of the quotes you got in there were just so rich. And so uh, maybe you, you'll do a better job describing, but the, I guess 
this whole notion of like you have federal agencies who make recommendations about building codes and then there's groups that actually make these recommendations that are become part of the, I guess, national code. Yeah. So the way it works is there's a, there's a model building code run by the International Code Council, the ICC. Uh, every three years, they, their members meet to talk about how to update that code. And in theory, cities or states can adopt those model codes, often with variations. And every three years, there's a fight over the degree to which you try to update those codes based on better technology and more severe risks, how you use those codes to protect people and their homes from more severe storms and flooding and other climate-related events. Or just, you know, leave climate out of it. More, more severe weather, whatever the cause might be. And what I found in writing about it was, in theory, you would have codes that get better and better as technology gets better. And as long as they're reasonably cost, reasonably priced, uh, you would have them adopted and people would be protected because their local officials would use more up-to-date codes. And what I found was, of course, that's only part of it. The other part is you've got interested business, as with any issue, saying what makes the most sense. And there's a group, the National Association of Home Builders, and their policy is whatever adds to the cost of a home, we are against. So what happens in these, these every three years, these updates, is FEMA and engineers and safety groups will say, we'd like the following changes, and there's hundreds of them, to be adopted into residential building codes. Uh, and then there's a fight. And what I found was home builders have been extremely successful at keeping the most significant changes from being adopted. And they brag about it. They send notes to their members saying, you know, this year we were able to stop X percent, 90 percent or whatever it is, X percent of these proposals from becoming uh, adopted into the code. And it's a really tricky issue because they're you can't fault them. At one level, you can't fault them. Their only obligation is to their members. And the members' view is whatever increases costs decreases demand for homes. Just a linear relationship, uh, which I think is true. There's certainly some some linkage there. Right? I don't know how strong it is. Um, but then you think, okay, but – and this is a point that safety advocates made. When you're a consumer, when you're buying a home, you walk into a home and you think – do I like the countertop in the kitchen? Do I like the shape of the garage? Do I like the shape of the lawn? Does it feel cozy in the family room? You don't think, you know, what what is the wind force velocity that my roof can withstand? You don't think what's the elevation level? You don't think what are the breakaways in case of flooding? You sort of at some level assume that somebody else has figured that out and that your home is as safe as it could be. And, and what I found in writing about this was it's much less true than you might think or than you might hope uh, because there's this battle going on about the business of building codes. And I think as climate change gets worse, that'll be an area, especially if we don't want to leave our homes and leave our neighborhoods, there'll be think, more pressure to get new homes built to the best possible and cost-efficient standards, which isn't happening now. Boy, you must have been 
infinitely patient for this story and just looking for the nuance and looking for those moments because I'm sure that it was probably a bit of a challenge unless someone was sort of feeding you information. But like, I want to do another quote here. And this is someone from the home building. And this is the, the sort of the friction between, let's say, a FEMA or some of the groups that are making recommendations. And so this person says, and this is regards, I think, to like changing the, the roof so they would withstand extreme storm events. And the quote is, the current codes already resist these loads, meaning the storm loads. So what everybody should be pushing for is the adoption of the current codes we already have. And so when I read that, I was thinking, did you know enough to push back on his comment about the current code already resists this load? Because that's a scientific sort of statement he's making there. Yeah. And the other, the other catch in his statement was that uh, developers and home builders will often fight back at the local level. So if you're a city or a state and you're trying to adopt more efficient or more updated building codes, there'll often be pushback from builders saying, don't adopt this provision. Don't adopt that provision. And sometimes you'll have slippage where a state, this happens in Florida, a state will say, we're going to have a weaker building code on this front or that front. Again, because the concern is that whatever increases the cost of a house decreases demand and hurts the economy. So, I mean, like so much else in adaptation, the strength of the homes we live in always comes back to how you compare current and future costs and who pays them. Right. Is is a is a five percent increase in the cost of a home today a good idea if it reduces by X percent the odds of a hundred thousand dollar storm damage five years down the road, 10 years down the road? You can make that math work. But the problem is who pays. it, Right. If it's if it's a different person paying the money now to avoid the loss down the road, often that loss aversion won't happen because they'll decide understandably, it's not their problem, right? They don't want to pay more now to help avoid damage down the road. And that's that sort of classic misaligned incentives that define so much of climate change. And it's, I think, one of those great questions. You can't really deal with climate change and adaptation until you align those incentives, until you have the same people facing today's costs and facing costs in the future. Well, so further on in that article, there's another great quote. It's from someone Jones, but there's a laziness on the part of the consumer about demanding a more resilient housing stock, and then they concede, but expecting the average buyer to consider the wind load of a home's roof may be unrealistic. Really? Of course, you know, people pick up the paper and they're out to go buy a home, and they're not thinking, is this going to withstand climate change impacts? And so I thought that was very kind of arrogant to kind of think – of all the things that a consumer is factoring in, like, you know, extreme weather loads, that's we're a modern society. You think that would be expected? Yeah. And, and there's a there's a sort of a, a moral dimension here. Right. Some people will say it's it's the responsibility of the consumer to make educated choices. It sort of ties into healthcare, Right. You, you, you on paper, economic theory says people respond to incentives and they understand their incentives. And they know how to make good choices that reflect their needs and their their preferences. In reality, a lot of these choices facing consumers are extremely complicated. Uh, buying a house is a great example. And you may not know whether your house uh, is as strong as it could be. Another example is, is flood risk, right? A big debate in flood risk policy is whether there should be mandatory disclosure by sellers or by real estate agents when a house is in a flood zone. With, with some exceptions, there is no requirement that a real estate agent says to you, before you buy this house, you should know it's flooded X times. And here's where it sits on FEMA risk maps. And be aware of that before you buy it. 
you can see why real estate agents wouldn't want to have to tell you that. And in most cases, they don't. But but I think it's hard to assume that homeowners or home buyers, potential home buyers, will have that information, will seek that information, even that they'll act on that information. And so this this question of limited knowledge is, I think, really at the heart of so much about climate adaptation and the way consumers behave in reality. Well, you know, I've, I had more questions related, and I want to get through some more content here, but I just want to point out, you know, you had an article on climate gentrification. I, I don't think we should spend much time on, but again, it was very interesting on how a lot of these choices are really impacting, of course, it applies the world over, how it's affecting the poorest people. And I'm just curious, maybe you have some is it thoughts on that. Yeah, I I, um, I wrote a piece last year on uh, public housing in the U.S. I, it, it came out of a conversation I had with HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the agency that's funding this first-of-its-kind project in Louisiana to relocate a community threatened by climate change. And I said, hey, you know, while, while we're talking, how many or what share of the country's public housing units are in at-risk areas, floods, hurricanes, whatever? And they said they didn't know. And I said, well, I, I, if you don't know, I bet there's no program to fix them. Hmm. She, she said, that's, that's correct. So when I looked into it, what I found was a pretty clear trend that after a disaster, uh, certainly it takes the average person a long time to get federal help rebuilding their home. But if you're in public housing, odds are pretty good that that housing, housing either will never be rebuilt uh, or will take a very long time. And the conclusion that I came to in the piece was if you're looking for examples of people in America – already being forced to change where they live, to move neighborhoods because of climate change. It is it does seem to be happening. And it's people in public housing because after a storm they have the least options uh, and their homes are rebuilt the most slowly or not at all. Uh, so again it's one of those areas where climate adaptation overlaps in a painful way with existing cleavages in this country between people with money and without money. Often there's a racial component. It tends to be the most disadvantaged communities that are facing this in the first place after Katrina, of course, in New Orleans. Uh, so it's, you know, climate change in that way isn't a new issue. It just it accelerates divisions that already exist in the country. Well, one of the quotes, and it was completely wishful thinking, they acknowledged it, but saying how climate change and this movement of lower income people, there's a huge opportunity, especially with affordable housing. If the resources were there, that you have a lot of bad affordable housing right now. And if you had the funding as you move, people are a lot more thoughtful about it. You could Climate change could actually be a, a catalyst for major reform for affordable housing. But as you just said, the resources aren't following up through these climate change impacts. And it's tough. You know, there's, you know, it's really hard to find funding for a new program. It's hard to find funding for existing programs. But this, you know, this notion that somehow there's going to be federal assistance for all the Americans who have to move because of climate change or even some meaningful portion of them, it's hard to see where that money comes from. I think the lesson of all the, all the small attempts so far is it's one thing to acknowledge that climate change is happening. But in my experience from my reporting, every level of government has a real challenge turning that realization that this is real into meaningful policy. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know how that changes. It's not clear yet to me when that'll change. If it's a question of more disasters, more severe disasters, uh, public demand in theory could force governments to redirect resources to dealing with this stuff. I think another way of looking at it is it's, it's just really hard to see any kind of large-scale mobilization of, of federal money or state money 
for problems that still, despite their scale, will only affect a small slice of the population at any given time. Well, so I, I kind of want to wrap this up slowly and have a discussion, you know, about the future of adaptation. And that's a big discussion, but, uh, just, uh, some questions, you know, to take us down that path. First off, are there any other good reporters who are doing the adaptation beat that you'd recommend? Uh, you know, I'm not aware of a lot of reporters who focus on this explicitly. Uh, and I think, I think most people who write about it will write about it sometimes. I, I think that'll change. My guess is in the next year or two, We'll see more focus on this, more attention. I, I personally find it just as interesting, if not more interesting, than covering emissions, again, because there's a very clear human component. Um, but right now, it, it, for whatever reason, seems to get a lot less attention than this debate over how we cut emissions. Okay. And I, I was trying to – so this – my question, too, is it, these stories that you're telling, they're almost like these little sp- – you know, little pieces of this broader adaptation narrative. And, you know, and I was sort of visualizing, you know, those mosaic where you look at a dot, but then as you step farther and farther back, you actually see like a bigger image. And like right now, I feel like our face is planted right against the wall. But do you, are you sensing any contours of a grander kind of what's this adaptation story? Because, you know, as I kind of push it, I think it's going to be the, the narrative of our society for the next hundred years, but it's not catching on just yet. And I'm curious. Are you kind of sensing things like that? Yeah, I think the only way you, the only way in which this is a, a, a broader sort of national story is in the sense that every, every challenge, every climate related challenge in every part of the U.S. is both completely different and completely the same. It's different in that every area faces some different mix of floods or hurricanes or wildfires or whatever it is, but it's the same in that the, the same sort of tortured incentives apply. The incentive to do nothing until you absolutely have to is very strong. So there's probably a broader conversation about, you know, how how we think about future risk and, and people talk about education uh, as sort of a euphemism for shaking people out of this reluctance to look at the future uh, with any kind of clear-eyed vision. But I, I think the nature of climate change means it'll always be regional stories because right now that's where the impact is and i think that'll only change when you have somebody federally who makes the point to do something and we could i think a fascinating debate is how much the obama administration changed on this certainly they talked about it they had executive orders they tried to change some policies it's not clear to me how committed they were to moving the proverbial needle on this so I think until you have a president or leading figures in Congress who really want to change policy, this will still be looking mostly at the outcomes here as opposed to the national conversation over how we decide where we live, how we decide who we help, and how we decide when something has to change. I think those, for the moment, are local questions that are mostly ignored in Washington. I know it's very hard for a reporter to make these kind of predictions, but do you think you will work on adaptation theme stories for the rest of your reporting career? <laughs> Boy, I, I, I would love to meet the reporter who knows what they're working <laughs> on for the rest of their career. I think it's a great story right now, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be on it. And, okay, and so the reason I, I, I mentioned that is, and I had him on my podcast before, Andy Repkin, you know, who's a, a climate mm-hmm. change legend in reporting circles and he's been at the center of controversy and in some ways he has been a story unto himself but he has been covering this and i think a lot of us have just been you know we learned a lot about climate change through andy revkin at the new york times you know he was there Mm -hmm. for years Mm -hmm. and 
I, I guess it would kind of be interesting if you are that guy 20 years from now, 30 years from now, that you've stuck with the topic that a whole generation of people are learning from you on this subject because there is value in being able to kind of watch this issue unfold over, you know, decades. Yeah, you know, my, my guess is that as as this becomes more pressing and as as more officials start trying to do something about it, we'll have a lot more reporters covering it. And I'm, you know, I think it's it's a great beat that that for now has no shortage of stories to tell. Okay, that was my next question. What big stories do you want to cover from here on out? <laughs> you know, I, I I've I've found that that um, I spend a lot of time looking at coasts, and I think that a lot of this stuff happens inland as well. Uh, and I think finding a way to um, to help readers see how climate pressure and climate change affects people who don't live anywhere near an ocean uh, is an important part of this and maybe doesn't get as much attention as it should. I certainly haven't been writing about it as much as I should. And then I think there's a fascinating interplay between climate change and obviously being at Bloomberg, I would say this, but climate change and the markets. Uh, I wrote a piece just a few days ago about um, how municipal bonds and credit ratings interplay with climate effects. Uh, and I think, you know, it's, we can talk now about how there isn't much obvious movement. I think one of the forces, one of the triggering points for all this will be when markets get involved, get more involved, uh, and investors start to say, this is a risk and we've got to find a way to deal with it. I think that probably has as much or more potential to produce changes on the ground as government action. Uh, and so certainly I'll be I'll be still watching what what investors and the markets do about responding to climate risk, insurance companies, developers, uh, and rating agencies. I think that's a big part of the story. Okay. So a question I ask all my guests is, if I can have someone on the podcast, who would you recommend? What would your recommendation be? Well, you know, the, when I ask people, when I ask sources, people in this area, who they talk to in the White House about this, uh, almost universally, uh, the answer I get is it's not yet clear uh, who in the White House think about this. I would love, Doug, for you to find the person at the White House who spends the most time on this and have them on the show and say, what is your policy on climate adaptation? Because not only do I not know the answer, I've yet to meet someone who knows the answer. Uh, so that would be that'd be a real get. You go get that guy, Doug. <laughs> I love this challenge. Yes. Um I might just have to hang out in front of the White House to, to find this person, you know, because I think the normal channels aren't working out for reporters. No. All right. Good suggestion. And what you might have just suggested was absolutely no one, which might be a little bit depressing. But uh, I bet there's somebody. We just we're not sure yet who it is. who who got this beat. So <laughs> we'll see. All right. I really appreciate you you coming on the podcast. I mean, again, I learned a ton from the reporting that you're doing. I'm glad that you're out there doing these things. And as I was reading these things, I was thinking there are graduate schools that could just have tons of students just working on these subjects that you're bringing up that haven't got enough attention. So I, I hope people out there listening realize this is just gold material. But uh, sort of any final thoughts? You know, I, I guess the only final thought is the thing that I find the most heartening with all this is none of it's set in stone, right? Because it's a new area, we haven't really figured out how much we can do as a society to try to avert some of these worst outcomes. Uh, and I think you could look at that as cause for despair and, and predict that we will continue to sort of fall down on the job. But there's, there is room for optimism, right? There are towns and cities that are saying, let's do the right thing. And, and I think once, 
once people decide that they want to address it and and commit some resources to it, there's nothing that says we can't find a way to make this a bearable transition, even possibly good for some for some people, maybe for everyone. Uh, it, I realize how optimistic that sounds, but the thing that strikes me is there's there are no clear constraints at this point beyond money and people's willingness to try new things. So it it certainly it's a beat and an area that can seem quite disappointing and and a bit a bit negative, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, and so one thing I always look for is people doing interesting things that might just work. Uh, and that's, that's what keeps me going because I think climate change is a lens and a mirror to see ourselves and our institutions. And it's still possible that we'll come out impressed by how well we do uh, and trying to help people and find innovative ideas. So it's, it's still early. Uh, and I think there are people out there with good ideas and who are, who are trying to make them work. So I, I find climate change to be a reason for optimism now and then. Oh, that's awesome. Final message, because I created this podcast emphasizing adaptation because I thought it was more of a positive narrative than what we're hearing on the emission side. So, no, I appreciate that. And so, you know, I want to extend an open invitation. Maybe there's a great story that comes out in six months, 12 months that, you know, maybe a podcast is a good platform to share it. So, you know, you always have an open invitation to come on the podcast. Well, I appreciate again, that. Thanks for, for, uh, Joining in, Chris, I really appreciate it and keep doing what you're doing. And all right, everybody, till next time, this is America Adapts. Thanks so much. That is a wrap, Adapters. Thanks to Christopher Favell from Bloomberg News for coming on the podcast. So just so you know, as it's a bit of a follow-up and Chris asked me to do this, one of the questions I asked was who were some of his favorite adaptation writers? And he answered that somewhat, but he thought about it a little bit more after the podcast and he wanted to share that. He wanted to highlight the work of Erica Bolstead at Climate Wire and then John Upton at Climate Central. He said they're doing some amazing work and he wanted me to just point this out because he forgot to share that in his answer. So thanks, Chris, for that. So uh, yes, I hope you are as excited as I am about America Daps Media becoming a nonprofit, please consider supporting the podcast. Your donation is now tax deductible. But I know most of you don't donate to charities for that reason. You donate because you believe in the cause. I hope what we're doing here is something you think is important. There's a link to the donations page in the show notes, or you can go to the, my website, americadaps.org. All right, some of the usual business. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and write a review. There's a Facebook page and a Facebook community group page that you have to ask to join, and people keep joining every week, and I love it. The uh, community keeps growing. I'm at Twitter, at USA Adapts. Don't forget to send an email. If you have questions, if you have comments about an episode, or if you have ideas for guests, I love getting emails from you folks. Again, visit the website at americadapts.org, and stay tuned. I'm undergoing a major revamp at the website. I'm going to make it more of a community, as I'd mentioned in my conversation with Dan. Also, I have some great guests coming up, and I'm also traveling to Uganda in a couple weeks to attend this community-based adaptation conference. And very excited about that. My first time to Africa and being sponsored to go there. And that's what I hope to do with future podcasts, to be sponsored to go to different places and tell these stories. And so I'm going to Uganda and talking to how people are doing adaptation in the developing world. Very excited about that. All right, folks. Not folks. All right, adapters. You have a great week out there. And come on, let's all help build this community of adapters together. Thanks.